Welcome to the Dark Side of the Full Moon podcast. I'm Jennifer Silliman, and this show is continuing the conversations started in the award-winning first-ever documentary film about maternal mental health. My journey as an advocate began through the power of storytelling. With this podcast, I hope to create a community of women and professionals sharing their own powerful narratives to let others know they're not alone and help is out there. Keep in mind that some of the stories you will hear may be triggering, but it's important they be told. This podcast is not a replacement for professional help from a licensed medical provider. If you or someone you know is suffering due to a maternal mental health condition, please contact your medical provider or call or text message the Postpartum Support International Helpline at 1-800-944-4773. Now let's continue the conversation. Hi there, everyone, and welcome to another edition of the Dark Side of the Full Moon podcast. I am here today with our first guest from Canada, which is really, really exciting. Her name is Catherine Mellinger, and she is the lead artist of a project called Postpart. She's also an expressive art therapist. Welcome, Catherine, to the show. Thank you for having me. First Canadian guest. I'm excited. It's so exciting. And this is your first podcast talking about this project, too. Ooh, yeah, it's like, it our, it's my first it's like an podcast. exclusive, an exclusive with Dark Side <laughs> of the Full Moon. I love it. <laughs> um, well, this project is absolutely amazing. And like most projects and careers that people start, it's from a personal experience. So I think I'd like yeah. you to just share what you're comfortable with sharing of your own personal story with um, postpartum. Yeah. Um, I mean, I like to say that my postpartum experience started when I was 10. Um, so I have a pre-existing mental health condition. I was diagnosed with obsessive compulsive disorder when I was 10 years old. And I, I mean, really looking back, like I don't have memories where there wasn't fear or anxiety kind of related to that. So I had a pre-existing diagnosis that I'd been living with, um, you know, in adolescence and through teenagehood and into adulthood. Um, and had been managing in various different ways, you know, have been in like in therapy for most of my teenage to adult life. Um, And so that was very much on the table when I got pregnant with my first, Um, you know, we had midwives, we had amazing care. um, And it was always out on the table, like it wasn't something that I had hid from people um, when they asked about mental health. And so it was just always on the table. But throughout all of those discussions, like no one really warned me how that might possibly shift with a pregnancy. Like usually people just ask me like, how are you managing? Or do you have a therapist? And I had just completed my expressive arts therapy training. So I was like fresh out of three years of like intense therapy to support my studies. And so I felt really good about my life, but nobody really warned me or gave me any, um, even just any information, no consults, no nothing to sort of tell me that that might shift when I gave birth and when I became a mom, a parent. And so after I had my son, I just had this like completely overwhelming, overpowering return of all of these symptoms that I hadn't had for years and years, like decades even, you know, since I was a teenager. And suddenly everything shifted from like being about me you know, like classic OCD, a lot of my intrusive thoughts were around the people that I love and that myself and, you know, things might happen to people. And suddenly that shifted onto being about my newborn baby who was depending on me (laughs) to live. 
And I just was completely sideswiped by that experience. Like I thought I had it all together and then suddenly I just didn't. And then of course, like most people would say, I thought quote unquote that I had it all together. But then looking back at my pregnancy, it was really hard to decipher until afterwards what was actually normal concern and anxiety in the preparation of having a baby for the first time. And also just like what wasn't normal, like what wasn't within that average anxiety that somebody would feel. So I was really fortunate after the birth that, I mean, I don't want to say I'm fortunate that the symptoms were immediate, but in a way that is something that I see as a positive is that it was very clear and it was very sudden and it was very fast. Um, because, you know, I was in midwifery care till six weeks postpartum, um, before moving on to a family doctor. And I was very, very lucky to have a doula who was also a really close friend of mine and an additional very dear friend who basically just stepped in, in the postpartum period and started checking in on us because she got the sense that something was off. And by like week four, she just really gently was like, I don't think you're okay. Like, I, I don't think you're doing well. And I think maybe you should talk to your midwives. And I, of course, just burst in tears. And I was like, I know, like, this is not fun for me. Like, I'm not enjoying this. I'm terrified all the time. I was calling my husband every 15 minutes when he went back to work because I was just terrified of being alone with my baby. Like, making it out onto the porch was like a huge success. Um, having him in a carrier outside was like a double success. You know, I couldn't go anywhere without supervision. I couldn't go anywhere alone because I was just terrified. And even the first appointment, so I called my midwives right away and they immediately could tell in my voice, like I just let it all come out and they brought me in immediately. And within two days, I was really, really fortunate. Within two days, I had an appointment, um, at a specialized clinic at women's college hospital in Toronto in a program called the Life Stages program, which specializes in perinatal mental health support, which in retrospect, I should have been going to that program when I was pregnant because I had a pre-existing condition. Um, But no matter, I got in there quite quickly and proceeded to have a year of treatment, saw their psychiatrist, went back on medication, um, and then started seeing one of their clinical social workers there for a year. And I think it took me the first three appointments I had to have a friend with me, like, cause I had to take the subway to get to the appointments. And at first I thought I would walk, which would take me an exceptionally long time. And in the end I had a friend, she was one of my closest friends. I was really lucky that she just said, I'll come with you. Like she was teaching and she had some flexibility and she wasn't full time. And she said like, I'll come with you if that's what it takes. And so she came with me on the subway to the first, I think three appointments. And then towards the end, I just said, I think it's okay. Like I can go by myself, but I, I really just couldn't go anywhere by myself. I was so terrified of what would happen to me or to Leo, my son. Like I was just, I was just a mess really. Um, so that was really what started it. And then when I had my second, I was more fortunate in that I knew what the risks was, especially with a pre-existing condition. Like I, I knew that I live with OCD for the rest of my life. So I just, I just had more awareness and I had more support. And so I had consults with the psychiatrist before my second, I stayed on medication. The psychiatrist that I met in Toronto basically said, I, I don't feel comfortable trying to wean you from medication until you're done having children. Um, 
it was a big sort of psychoeducational experience, even though I'd had like 25 years of experience with an illness, it was a, it was a completely different perspective on OCD that I had never had before when suddenly, you know, the, the characters quote unquote of your thoughts and of your processes become this little tiny baby that literally is depending on you to stay alive. Um, it just threw, it threw all of my coping mechanisms out the window. Like whatever I had before I had a baby, I just didn't have those anymore at all. And I was starting from scratch. Um, yeah. And then with my second, I was a bit more fortunate, um, in that like the pregnancy was much less anxious. The labor was much less anxious and the postpartum was better. And then at eight weeks he got hospitalized for bronchiolitis and like the demon came back. And so it's just amazing how you can still have this like really beautiful process after having an experience like that, but something can just flip that switch and suddenly you're just back where you started again. So that was really interesting to have these two glorious months of bliss. And then suddenly I was just like awful again <laughs> and dealing with suddenly I wasn't, I was dealing with like the OCD plus PTSD from the experience of his hospitalization. And so that's kind of been the last two and a half years is, you know, coming to terms with that and processing all of that and just knowing that there's nothing that quote unquote, like will flip the switch and make me better forever because there is the reality of a pre-existing condition that I still have to live with. Um, even after I process all of the, all of the material that specifically has to do with my children. Yeah, of course. Oh my goodness. Yeah. It's yeah. amazing how that one little thing can just yeah, it is like a trigger. It's a trigger. It's yeah. a switch. It happens in the blink of a second and you're just like does. taken back there. It's so frightening. Yeah. It's so yeah. frightening. And when it's and unexpected I, too, it's, oh. you know, it's, it's not like I was, nobody's expecting their child to get really sick and end up in the hospital. <laughs> you right, know, like, right. I mean, he, because he was born healthy and there wasn't, you know, like I've known friends to lose their children from illness, from, you know, certain rare disorders. And I remember the day before he got sick, being at like a yoga workshop for moms and saying like, I just feel really guilty that I have a healthy child because my friend had just lost her son a year previous. And then the next day he started going downhill. And so, you know, for someone with OCD, that's like the perfect storm of circumstance that basically makes you feel like you created your own fate, you know? Right. And yep. I think anybody listening who has OCD, they're just like, oh yeah, that, that's going to mess you up yep. <laughs> like to have that to have that timeline correlation. Of yeah. Having to have that connection those between those two things. <laughs> and then have that circumstance happen. It's like, that's like, that's the piece that's the hardest to get over because your brain is still just convinced that you manifested that for yourself. Right. Um, yeah. So it was just really unfortunate circumstance how it all happened because I was like, Oh, this is, you know, OCD brain. Like this is the universe showing you that you can't get too comfortable. <laughs> yeah. Right. Right. Oh my goodness. That's so true. Yeah. It's so true. And I like what you said about how your coping mechanisms that you had prior weren't, they don't work for when you have a baby no. No. Um, who needs your attention 24 seven, basically. So yeah. yeah and that's... I was breastfeeding too. And so, oh boy. Yeah. you know, a lot of people had said like, well, why don't you just give them a bottle? Why, you know, like, why not this? Why not that? And I understand that they're coming from a place of they're coming from a place of attempting support, but like I was having troubles with breastfeeding. I wasn't like my sister was helping me. I, I have like a horseshoe at my butt. Like my sister was a La Leche league leader. She was on the phone with me every day. I was dealing with like massive oversupply 
And so that, that's not an option. Like if you're dealing with trying to regulate your supply, if you're dealing with having too much milk, if you're dealing with a kid who's choking at the breast, like giving them a bottle isn't necessarily the solution. And also like my husband had to go to work. So what's the point of making him get up in the middle of the night? Like it's all just so complicated. So there's a lot of people along the way who have said like, well, why didn't you ever just give him a bottle? And it's like, well, that wasn't actually an option. Like if, if we really want to get scientific and technical about it, like it just wasn't an option for us. And also it, it didn't seem necessary, but it was just the reality that that then feeds the, the danger element of the fears because you're like, if I don't nurse him, he will die. Like that's what your OCD mm -hmm. brain is saying. And so it does complicate things. But then just taking that away doesn't help lower right. your anxiety anyways, because you're just going to find something else to be anxious else. about. That's right. So then if I'm dealing with somebody bottle feeding him and then I'm dealing with like massive psychological upheaval with like my boobs being rock hard every day because I'm not, you know, getting the milk out easily. It's like, it doesn't actually help. It doesn't. And then I would have ended up with like mastitis. Like, what does that help? <laughs> right. right. So, oh, it's yeah. so true. That's so true. And that's how the OCD brain works. I mean, it is a, yeah. it is a snowball effect and, yeah. and it, it's, it's hard to beast. stop. Yeah, yeah, it is. It really it's is. It really is. <laughs> so, so let's transition to this amazing project. Um, this yeah. is just incredible. Um, it's Thank just incredible. You. Um, gives me goosebumps. It's so good. So, Thank um, it's you. called postpart. Um, and why yeah. don't you explain to our listeners what it is? Yeah. I mean, I guess I'll tell you a bit of history. So postpart is sort of the one sentence elevator pitch. Postpart is an inter arts, um, exhibition that takes testimonies and experiences from perinatal mood and anxiety disorders and finds inspiration in um, a short story called The Yellow Wallpaper by Charlotte Perkins Gilman that was written in, I'm gonna say 1892. Um, and for people who do know this short story, essentially Charlotte Perkins Gilman experienced, after she had her baby, she was prescribed the resting cure, which is a very well-known cure in the in late 1800s, where when you had your baby, if you were having struggles, Someone took your baby and you went to a house far away and you did nothing for three months, nothing, no contact with your baby, no interaction with human beings. And you just rested. You literally just rested for three months. Um, and many, many, many women lost it. <laughs> like many, many women were traumatized by the experience and eventually the resting cure was no longer prescribed. It was designed by a man. Let's just say that too. Um, so Charlotte Perkins Gilman herself actually went through the resting cure after she had her first and only child, I believe her only child. I'm going to have to fact check that. Um, and she was so traumatized by the experience that she wrote a short story about it essentially as an act of activism and a big kind of like fingers up to um, the patriarchal medical system and said, you can't do this to women. Um, it also turns out Virginia Woolf was also given the resting cure as well. So so this short story was actually her act of activism against the system, quote unquote, the patriarchal medical system. And it was really pivotal of the time for a woman to write so honestly from her own perspective of what was happening to her. So originally the project was actually Pazit Kalan, who's a collaborator in Toronto. She had kind of the big picture idea for this project and she had had it 
um, accepted to an exhibition in Toronto and through friends had found me. And at the time I was running a therapeutic collage group for women in the postpartum period um, in Kitchener. And she found me and she said, can you make a collage? She sort of presented this whole idea of postpart and asked me to do the collage. So it's really her baby. And then after our first exhibition, she just, I was like, we can't have this be it. It has to go somewhere else. And so she just handed over the reins to me. So initially what postpart was, was a room that we built out of stage flats that was designed to go inside of a hotel room where the exhibition was. So a room within a room and the walls were covered in this yellow wallpaper, which Charlotte Perkins Gilman describes in this like putrid, horrid, she uses all these kinds of words around the wallpaper. Um, and for those who know the story, she starts to hallucinate that there's a woman trapped in the wallpaper. And so we had created this wallpaper that was um, yellow, had like a yellow tinge to it, which was the collage that I had created that was put into a yellow, like a full tone yellow. And then on top of that was the brocade that was beautifully created by Nat Jan and an illustrator. Um, and the brocade, people can see on the website, the brocade has like, you know, women's legs open, breasts with milk coming out, bottles, babies, fetuses, ovaries. Like, it's really, when you kind of dive into the brocade, you're just like, whoa, like I should not. Yeah, it's fascinating. Actually, I have it up on my other screen here and it really is. I mean, yeah. you miss things. Like you really have you to, I mean, you look around, you, you, you yeah. miss like certain details, but it is, yeah. it is really, really You can spend amazing. a lot of time with it, which is, it's really stunning. So this wallpaper has a really kind of special component to it in that it uses RGB filter technology so there's a design duo in Italy called Karnovsky that created these full scale murals and rooms that were three toned and then they would put theater lighting into the rooms. And so every time, like when the green lights would go on, you saw one part of the wallpaper. When the blue lights went on, you saw another part. So we used that and Pazit has a background in theater production. And so we used that technology and the yellow, because the yellow wallpaper, yellow had to be a color. And so the, the the sort of light opposite of that is blue and so the wallpaper is yellow and then the brocade is blue but then when you look at it through a blue gel which you would put on a theater light then the brocade sort of disappears and then you find out that the yellow of the wallpaper is actually a mosaic collage image um, of women being treated in different sort of medical uh, medical fields there's like doctors and nurses and babies and um, so the whole room was covered in that wallpaper and we initially pre COVID, we invited people into the room to hold a blue gel up, um, and look at the walls through the blue gel. And we also had, um, an amazing sound designer, Adam Herendorf, who I still work with, who composed, he, they had recorded testimonies from people in Toronto and from Kitchener. And we had embedded little audio speakers into the backs of the walls. And um, as people moved through the room, they would trigger like an audio. So you almost had to like lean in to really catch it, but it was like the walls were whispering to you. And so you would trigger, like somebody would start telling you something or you would trigger another one and it was the yellow wallpaper being red and you would trigger another one and there's like a baby crying or a music box. Um, so that's how it kind of initially was. And now ever since then, we've kind of had to pivot because COVID has been following us <laughs> through the years <laughs> with this project. So the second time that we set it up, we still set it up physically, but we 
completely blue washed the room so that people didn't have to go close to the walls. And then we completely filled the space with sound so that it wasn't based on audio trigger. And now in Kitchener, we've had to pivot again. And so now what we've ended up doing um, is really bringing in the virtual element. So we actually have windows in downtown Kitchener that have been sponsored for us um, by the city as well as some other partners where they're allowing us to cover the windows in the wallpaper, like in a vinyl adhesive of the wallpaper. And then at each of the window sites, um, there's a poster with a QR code on it. And when you scan that QR code with your smartphone, then you get access to like a secret quote unquote web page where there's an audio composition and there's stills so that people can still interact with the shifting of the wallpaper, but they don't necessarily have to do it on site. They can, they can pick up a blue gel at our locations, but um, they can also do it all virtually. So in going with that, we sort of just kept going and now we've made it available 100% virtually. So people who are donating to our local climb, we send them a link, a virtual link of an interactive map. And then they can actually just click on each of those map links and get exactly what's on the QR code of the site. So you can sort of pretend you're walking through Kitchener, um, but just experience the whole thing online. So it's the same elements in terms of wallpaper, audio, light shifting, but we've just reconfigured it so that it makes sense for people not gathering. <laughs> Right. <laughs> and people potentially also just not being able to leave their homes. I mean, we're lucky right. that some people can still go walking and still experience it. And it will be up all summer for us, which gives the opportunity to kind of see past the next phase. Um, but it also now we can have international reach with it and we can send that link to anybody um, who's interested and anybody who donates kind of around the world. So that part, I think, is the most exciting for me. Yeah, and we're going to put links up for our listeners um, who want to um, check it out, um, donate, and, um, and read more about the project. I'm curious to know what the response has been, from, especially from the windows. I think this think that's a yeah. really cool concept that you were able to transition that into something like that. I would imagine mm -hmm. there's people that walk, you know, and then what's their – I mean, do they know what it is? Do they yeah. understand? I mean – it's a mix. It's a mix. Like there's definitely the capability of people to sort of fall upon it when they're out in the world and just not really know what it is. Um, and so we have had a mix of that where there's people who know that it's happening. We've been promoting it, you know, through Instagram and through the local climb. Um, Cause essentially all of the window spaces kind of form a pathway that people can physically walk for our local climb if they want to. Oh, that's neat. Um, okay. Yeah. And that was sort of why, that was sort of why it made sense to do it with the climb because I was going to be putting up postpart regardless. Like I was going to be going out and doing that. And then Lisette, who's the local um, co-leader with me was like, I want to do a climb. Is that stepping on your toes? And I was like, that's not stepping on my toes. Like I, you know, I'm doing postpart. And she's like, well, what if we just do it together and worlds colliding? Like her husband is the one who did all of the website development for us. Oh, wonderful. Um, Nat had helped with the design and then we just kind of took over. So it became this real kind of community family, close friend project where we just, um, it made sense to have something that would help promote the climb and then the climb can help promote postpart. 
And for people who physically want to be outside and who want to go take a walk one afternoon, they can go do it and we can, you know, map that for them. So the response has been mixed. Like there's definitely some people who have seen the windows and they're not really sure. It's very obvious when you're looking at the wallpaper that it's definitely centered around birth. Um, and thankfully most of the QR codes are like fairly close to where the wallpaper is. So some people have sort of figured it out, but I've also had some people tell me like, I saw your wallpaper and I was just staring, like just staring at it. Like you can just spend 20 minutes staring at the wallpaper without even knowing about the hidden images or the audio or anything like that. And if people get in touch with me, then I kind of say like, oh, did you find the QR code? Um, but we've had really amazing promotional partnerships too, where all of our sites have sent out like email blasts to their clients, to their mail lists. Um, you know, they're posting pictures on social media to show where the codes are and how it works. And so, yeah, I mean, so far response has been mostly just moving. Like people are just moved and intrigued and really curious about what it's all about and how we did it. Um, yeah, I think mostly just, I wouldn't say like shocked, but I think just intrigued um, because we're really laying it out there. <laughs> like we're not, yeah. we're not hiding experiences from people. We're also not hiding thematically what it is. I mean, when people look at the wallpaper, it's like, wait, like that woman's legs are open. <laughs> you know? right, there's, right. like, there's like a flower coming between her like when you really spend time with it, we're, we're being quite honest and in your face about it. Um, but in this sort of delicate way. Yeah, no. And it's beautiful. I mean, even the language and the stories are so raw that, I mean, and, and that lends itself to, I mean, that overall feeling, I mean, that's just art in general, right? And you see, yeah. I'm definitely not an artist, but you know, when, when, well, that's for, I guess, my film. But I mean, when you see <laughs> you something, you want, yeah. you, want to, you want to feel it. You want to connect to it yeah. emotionally. You want yeah. it to, you know. And I know for us, like for me and Maureen, everyone would say, well, what do you want your film to do? And we would say we want it to piss people off. Like we yeah. want people yeah. to be angry. We yeah. want you to leave with a fire yeah. that this yeah. can't keep happening. Yeah. Um, and so I think with this, it's, it is a really beautiful balance of – the rawness, just the beauty yeah. of motherhood. I'm still just looking at this. The, the, the design is just unbelievable. Yeah. Um, and then connecting it with the, with the climb is just like super cool. So I love that. Yeah. Um, yeah. Yeah. I, I, I would love to see something like this in the States. I mean, how yeah. like an interactive thing like that is just so, and it made me think of, there's an exhibit right now in, um, Miami for, um, mm. for Vincent van Gogh, they put his starry night and yes. then you can like walk in it, like you're yeah. in it. And that's yeah. kind of what this reminded me of, like something yeah. that you yeah. can like, just put your whole body in and then yeah. have all your senses be triggered because yeah. that's how you yeah. understand an experience, right? Absolutely. I mean, all of those things have to kind of be triggered, yeah. um, for you to know what it's like um yeah. to deal with you know especially postpartum and things like that yeah um, and I appreciate you saying that because that was one of the bigger fears when we were really confronted with not because originally when we were going to do it in Kitchener it was going to be inside of Kitchener City Hall which already was like really meaningful to me because I thought if City Hall is going to get me a space if the city is going to get behind this like that's a pretty big deal you know yeah. Anybody who sort of deals with like city policies and bureaucracy like even that right. felt amazing and for them to be on board with making it so public in a way, 
um, was really amazing. But my biggest fear was there's something about experiencing it as a room within a room where you just immediately start to feel claustrophobic, which is what we want, right? Right, like, of course. We want people to feel that kind of impending, like, this is uncomfortable. Comfortable. Um, and so we were really worried about losing that when we put it out on the street and, and how to figure out a way to still balance that, that sense of like sharing in the overwhelm, like for people to really understand what it feels like, or at least listen honestly to somebody's narrative. Um, so I'm really glad you said that because I think there definitely are areas where we can't recreate that outdoors, but we've tried to at least allow for something that's still really sensory. And still, you know, that just by, I mean, the windows are quite big, which is helpful because somebody can just stand in front of this thing that's bigger than them um, and just watch it. So, yeah. So I hope that we, I hope that we translated it somewhat efficiently. I think that I, I hope we did. (laughs) Yeah, I think so. I mean, I just, it's such a unique way to, to express this whole thing. I mean, it's just, I love it. I absolutely love it. I just and think you're it's right, amazing. That you do want people to be, be pissed off. Like we didn't, you know, we had people turn us down when we asked for windows, of course. And it's completely understandable. Like not everybody wants a brocade on their window that is showing, like, it's not like we're being graphic, but like when you spend time with the wallpaper, you're very clearly seeing women's anatomy and, you know, components of birthing. And so we got turned down by people saying like, we can't put that kind of imagery in our windows, you know? So just like you said, like you don't change it. You're just like, okay, well, I'll find the people who are okay with us putting this stuff out there because to lessen it is to really like insult the experience. Exactly. Because we're already, we already have such limited spaces to share our experience. So you don't want to become just another place that got altered and where the voices right. have to be a little bit censors things. Yeah, absolutely. Exactly. I mean, it, it, it can't be, I mean, that, that, that in part goes to everything around the stigma of talking about all of these things. Exactly. And I mean, you can't, yeah, you can't censor it. It definitely, no. yeah, and we're definitely not censoring anything. No, no, <laughs> no, you, no, you're definitely not censoring anything. It's, it's like so incredible. Too, we really, yeah, I feel very fortunate that we had so many people willing to provide testimony and they really don't hold back. Um, and yeah, I mean, we're very, very fortunate. It was really important for us to make sure that we were representational of real humans in the testimony. So, you know, we, we made sure that we had BIPOC voices, indigenous voices, queer voices, um, non-binary voice. We have a black male trans voice. Um, we just needed to make sure that it was like, that there was something, I mean, I don't want to say it's shocking because it shouldn't be shocking, but it really is the reality that some people are like, whoa, like why, why is this person talking about, you know, like misgendering or like people calling them a man, you know, a female with a beard or whatever. It's like, but that's the truth. Like that's the reality of what people are confronting. And that's, and the reality is that we're not looking at those. So we have to start looking at like the full spectrum of humans who are experiencing this condition and not keep hiding it because you're scared that it's going to offend someone or make make them feel uncomfortable. uncomfortable. Right. Yeah. It's like, well, I was uncomfortable for three years. (laughs) So, you know, like, (laughs) right. That's okay. Like, it's okay for you to be uncomfortable with that because if you're uncomfortable, that means you've come to realize something that you weren't aware of before. And that 
I think just needs to happen on so many levels that people have an awareness of who and what and how it feels for people. Yeah. I'm curious of the, um, for those that did kind of donate their narratives to the project, what's their response? Mm-hmm. What ha- I mean, what are they? It's been amazing so far. Yeah. It's been amazing. And we have, so this project, like when Pazit brought me on board before sort of handing the reins over, this was 2017 and I was pregnant with my second. And when the exhibition went on, he was five weeks old and now he's three and a half. So we've been working on this for nearly four years. Um, and we still have testimonies from some of the original women who gave us and birthing parents from four years ago. And I keep them updated sort of as much as possible. Some I've lost touch with, but there's a couple of people who always answer me when I email them and are just so excited. Um, and the response has just been gratefulness, which I find really profound. Like there's this sense of people saying like, thank you for doing this. And thank you for, you know, cause I like, I'm so thankful for their voices. It's a very vulnerable thing to share and mm-hmm. especially to share and put your name attached to it, you know, and people will see on our website, like some people choose to go by first name only some first and last. There's a whole range of different comforts there, but every single person has said, no, like put it out there, you know, put it out to whoever you need to. Um, and have just been profoundly grateful. And I think that's been really touching for me that I haven't had a single person say like, Oh, I don't feel good about this anymore. You know, I, I haven't had a single person who has said, can you actually take my part out of it? Because I don't feel comfortable. Cause that's always an option for people. Um, and so far I've just had people feel very grateful that we're doing this and that we're finding new ways of sharing it. And when we were specifically looking for new voices that would make sure that we were more inclusive and more diverse, people were just like, yes, happy to, you know? And I said, like, don't hold back. Like if you, we want to know, have you had specific discrimination? Have you had, you know, racial microaggressions? Have you had, like, please just lay it all out for me. Um, And most people are like, yeah. (laughs) Yeah. Where do I sign up? (laughs) It's maybe the first time that somebody has said, like, can you speak to me about the gender discrimination that you felt during your birthing process? Like nobody else is necessarily asking them to be honest about it. So um, it's a delicate balance because I, I'm always want to make sure that people will feel safe, you know? Um, But generally it's just been gratitude so far, but I'm still always ready for someone to say, I don't really feel comfortable anymore. Like I'm not in a good place. Could you just maybe do a different version? And I'm always completely open to that. Um, But thus far it's been nothing but like, yeah, great. Like put it out there. I'm okay with my full name or just do my first name. Um, We also don't use the people who are providing testimony are not voicing their testimonies to be able to give a little bit of safety. There's only one instance where the person whose testimony it is, is the one who's also recording it, but she's recording an excerpt from a book that she published. So to her, she's like, it's out there anyways. Right. I'm glad for it to be my voice because I'm reading this on radio and I'm, you know, recording an audio book. And so she just felt really comfortable saying like, yeah, it's in the book. Like if it's in the book, anybody can see it. (laughs) And it was just this, these particular passages that she gave us permission to use because they were so profound. So that's the only instance where the person's testimony is recorded by their own voice. I mean, I even provide testimony, but I don't read my own testimony. My, I'm voicing other people's testimonies and we have different people who are voicing mine, um, you know, just to 
to keep things safe for people, but also to drive home that point. Like this is anyone, this could be anyone. Wow. So powerful. I can't wait (laughs) now to, I cannot wait to get this out. This podcast will go out um, tomorrow. So I want to make sure that people can definitely um, have the opportunity to donate to your climb get the special link to, to view, um, mm-hmm. this project because it really is, it's just amazing. So I'm excited Thank to keep you. in contact with you to f- figure out how we're going to, uh, <laughs> cross the border here and get something know, like this right? in the United States, which would be <laughs> so neat. I, I, I just totally love yeah. the concept of it being localized, local stories, you know, yeah. and mm-hmm. it's amazing. Yeah. It's absolutely it would be really amazing. interesting to see where it goes. I mean, I'm very thankful that Pazit you know, Pazit was just really honest. She's like, I don't have plans to put this somewhere else, but I just said, is it okay if I take it? And she's yeah, go for it. So the last two exhibitions, I've just kind of gone with it. And, you know, we still talk often and um, she's still a hundred percent supporter, but it just, yeah, I think there's so much more advocacy that can be done and there's so many ways that it could get translated. And um, Yeah. I mean, for this one in particular, we wanted to stay local. And then with COVID, it was just really hard to make the relationships that we needed to make to be able to have the testimonies 100% local. But a lot of that just comes down to time, to relationships, to, you know, partners and sponsors. But there is a way to do that because in every single city, you could find enough audio testimonies to recreate an entire site-specific installation. You would have no problem finding no, that. No, you would have just no so problem happened, finding that. It just so happened with this one that, you know, I talked to a good friend of mine who's also like, um, he's a trans activist. And I was like, okay, what, what, what's the importance? Like, do I, is it more important for me to do this locally or is it more important for me to be transparent, inclusive, and diverse? And it just came down to like, make it diverse because that's what matters right now with everything going on in the world. It's like, okay, so we can take that local specific and put it somewhere else and maybe the next time. But like right now we just need to make sure that it represents people who are parenting and giving birth in this world and the population that is experiencing postpartum mood and anxiety disorders. So that was a choice we had to make, but there's so much, there's so much room. Like you can find enough people in every city in the world to be able to provide testimony. Yeah. Yeah. Oh, that would be so cool. Oh, that's so exciting. Well, to our listeners, I'm going to be putting links to everything in the notes to this podcast and they'll all be on all the social media links too. So, um, Catherine, thank you so much for talking with me today. I really, really appreciate it. Um, you sharing this experience with us. Thank you so much. Thank you for having me. And I appreciate that you wanted to talk about it. I love talking about it. So thank you for having me. Of course.